0: This episode is sponsored by Hope Words Writers' Conference. People are traveling from across the country to the coal fields of West Virginia for a weekend of imagining the work of new creation. Come and learn from world-class thinkers and writers including Marislav Volf, Anne Voskamp, Esau Macaulay, Catherine Patterson, and more. And when you come, find me and say hello, because I'll be there as well. March 24th and 25th, 2023. Use the link in the show notes of this episode to receive a special Makers and Mystics listener discount.
1: You know, when you talk about things like wonder and beauty and astonishment, the reality is, is that we cannot really experience that in survival mode. Our bodies, it's only as we begin to have those cues of safety that our bodies can sort of internalize that goodness.
0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Makers and Mystics podcast, season 11, episode one. I'm your host, Steven Roach, and this episode begins our series on art and the urge for transcendence. And in today's episode, my guest is trauma therapist and author, Andy Kolber. Andi Kolbert is the author of two books including Try Softer and her latest book Strong Like Water, finding the freedom, safety, and compassion to move through hard things and experience true flourishing. In our conversation, Andi shares with us what it means to be strong like water and how we can move through our pain into the expansiveness of our true selves. She shares about the importance of feeling safe in our bodies, that we might experience those deeper yearnings for awe and beauty and wonder. The music for this episode features the work of singer-songwriter Lynn Marie. And if you're part of the Makers & Mystics Creative Collective, you can enjoy a special bonus episode with Lynn at patreon.com slash mystics. This is my conversation with trauma therapist Andy Colbert. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's such an honor to have you on the show with me.
1: I am so happy to be here with you.
0: Absolutely. And hey, listen, I have to start off by just saying congratulations on the release of your new book, Strong Like Water. What an incredible book.
1: Mm, thank you so much. It's, it's really um, exciting to be able to talk about it with you.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's just dive right in then. I'd love to know what strong like water means to you because you seem to have a really unique vantage point at which you come at the idea of strength. And I'd I'd love it if you could unpack that a little bit for us today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think part of the backstory for me is that I have for a long time, I would say most of my life had a very ambivalent relationship. To this idea that of of strength, what it means to be strong. And a lot of that, you know, I share about this in the book, Strong Like Water, is rooted in my own story, my own experience of, in many ways, being viewed as very strong, as being a person who I think often was sort of seen as having it together. And, you know, there was value to that in the sense that, you know, I really frame it through the lens. A lot of those attributes were sort of rooted in survival. Mm. I didn't have a lot of choice. Um, I sort of, that's how I navigated a pretty intensely dysfunctional and at times traumatic childhood. And so that just happened to be a way that I think sometimes it was more socially, Praised, like in a way, like like I think other people at times might navigate it a little bit differently, but the root was that I felt pretty alone. I felt like I it came from a place of not really having a choice. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the ambivalence have has always come from. That there's a sense in which I'm proud of my younger me who did some really hard things, who, who faced hard things, who, and not that everything was perfect. I certainly don't wish that everything that happened did. But I the ambivalence is that I both feel sad and grateful. Mm-hmm. And a, a part of my own story in healing, and now because I'm I'm a I'm a therapist who specializes in, you know, often working with folks around trauma is sort of learning that we can honor how we survived and we can even really honor how our bodies are designed and that there is maybe a fuller way is how I like to talk about it. Like strength doesn't have to mean only just surviving. Mm-hmm. It often means also being able to receive It means having places where you feel safe, where you can rest, where you can be cared for, because almost paradoxically, that allows us to keep going in a way that is more in alignment with, I would say, like the truest strength.
0: Well, I read one of your Instagram posts about strength, and you talked about strength being something more than pushing through difficulty and how you would hope that we could begin to see strength as the expansiveness of what it means to be our God-given selves. And I'd love it if you could elaborate on that a bit. What does it mean for us to see strength as the expansiveness of being our true selves?
1: Well, I think on one hand, you know, that strength I'm referring to kind of when I talk about my childhood. Um, in the book, I unpack it through the lens of something I call situational strength. And that's really what I mean when I say like, we're just surviving. Like our body is literally essentially saying, what is the thing I have to do just to get through this situation? Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is, is that as we sort of experience even little bits of safety and care, what, what sort of naturally happens in our body is that we become more integrated. And, That word, I know it's sort of like this abstract, it can be sort of abstract, but what I really mean is, is that we have access to more of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when we're in survival mode, it's like you have access to like a 10th of who you were made to be. Wow. You know, and God bless that 10th. God bless it because I'm so glad that we have the ability to survive. But, you know, from a faith perspective, Jesus invites us to live from the fullness, to live from the fullness of life. Like that's why Jesus came. And so to me, these things are very much in alignment with this idea that as we experience connection and safety and love and hope, this strength that was once about survival, it begins to transform into accessing not only that, but also like what you're passionate about Mm -hmm. and also, you know, your creativity and also your fierceness and also your joy, right? There is so much more to us um, that's available when we're out When we no longer have to live from just survival. Mm
0: -hmm. That's so good. You know, this conversation on survival really interests me, even in the context of what we're talking about on the podcast this season, which is art and the urge for transcendence. Mm -hmm. And I made the statement that, you know, we cannot survive if we only focus on survival because the human heart was designed to be astonished. Mm -hmm. And it sounds very similar to some of what you're saying is that there are seasons when we're in that survival mode, but I think the fullness of our humanity really comes alive when we experience wonder or when we allow ourselves to drink in awe and astonishment.
1: I love that. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And I think that very much intersects with this whole concept. You know, in the book, I talk about this phrase compassionate resourcing. Mm. And I borrow it from a definition of a psychologist that I really love her work, Dr. Arielle Schwartz. And she says resourcing is anything that communicates safety to our bodies in the present. Now, the reason I see this connection is. You know, when you talk about things like wonder and beauty and astonishment, the reality is is that we cannot really experience that in survival mode. Our bodies, it's only as we begin to have those cues of safety that our bodies can sort of internalize that goodness. And what I love about what you're saying is is that there is a reality in which things like beauty and wonder and astonishment do exactly that. Mm -hmm. Like there is a sense in which um, those things, part of what they are doing to our body, I I think is that they are soothing our nervous system. And there's even more, right? Like I don't want to just make it a transactional thing. Sure. But one of the things that I think is so um, gorgeous about our design as people is that we are sort of created to behold. And when we behold, it does something even on a neurobiological level. And what that means is, is that that is part of what allows us to move towards that fuller strength. Mm-hmm. So there's all these parallel processes that are happening in our body when we can stop and really savor and observe and be with goodness. You know, and I think there's some really beautiful faith integration there because mm-hmm. if we know God to be the author of goodness, there is this upward cycle right that as we experience the connection and of being with god and, and even in creation that is a resource to us in this journey of n- like not only from a, like a creativity perspective but really from like the like a humanity like our nervous system like our overall wholeness
0: mm-hmm.
1: Is, um, is strengthened because we do those things.
0: Yes. Well, along those lines, you introduced me to a new term in your book that I think goes along with what you're saying. And the term was autonomic surveillance system of neuroception. Did I say that right? You did. (laughs) And yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this internal surveillance system is one that helps us determine whether we're safe in a particular environment. And, you know, this interests me to hear you elaborate on this because, you know, you mentioned in the book that when we feel calm and connected in our bodies, we tend to be more curious and compassionate and creative in our experience. And so... For us here, as we're exploring this theme of transcendence and moving through trauma and away from trauma into wholeness, that just really piqued my interest to hear you talk about how we can make that transition.
1: Mm, Yeah. Well, first of all, great job (laughs) pronouncing that. (laughs) Um, That's a term from Dr. Stephen Porges, and a lot of times people even just call it neuroception. And it's just this idea that, and this, I mean, I could geek out on this, but I'll I'll keep it a little more brief. Um, Basically, our bodies are constantly scanning our environment for cues of either safety or threat. And what's important to understand is that this is a subconscious way that our body operates. Like we're not consciously saying to ourselves, okay, check for safety, check for safety. This is something our bodies are designed to do in order to allow us to essentially survive. <laughs> I mean, that's, the, that is the, that's what it's meant for, which is wonderful because, you know, like, let's say um, I used to live in Colorado and um, when I would go on hikes, there were a lot of snakes, and I learned, I lived there for 17 years. I learned I had to be very aware of where I was stepping, like what was on the trail. And what was so interesting is my body, I would find, I mean, I would not have a conscious thought. If something even rem- like remotely looked like a snake, I mean, I jumped. <laughs> like I was way back. You know what I mean? Because because it was a very i mean my body knew it wasn't like i was super anxious about it it was more like it was like i knew i needed to be aware and i didn't have a conscious thought before my body reacted mm-hmm. so this is a great example of what neuroception does for us like we don't want it to go away we need it so that our body can help us do you know sort of get through those types of situations what can happen though Especially for folks who have a history of trauma, is our neuroception can get overly sensitized. Mm-hmm. And we may begin to assess experiences as being unsafe, even though they're actually, it's more about maybe a past experience than the present. Yeah. So, from this sort of art, creativity, fullness perspective, I think this really matters. I mean, as someone who's my work intersects, you know, as a writer, as someone who is in that space, I can say I have to make sure on a personal level, like I am grounded, like I am regulated, that my nervous system is picking up cues of safety um, when I'm trying to be creative. Because I literally can feel in my body the difference of you know, I, I sort of feel it like in my chest, my chest feels really locked up when I try to be creative and I'm not really in a space like, and I mean that emotionally and physically to do that work. It's like, I don't have the opening to be available to something really new, but when my body can first experience like, nope, you know, I'm safe in my body. I'm safe in, in my relationships. Like there's enough there, you know, mm-hmm. I'm safe in my connection with God. It opens me up. And I believe it really for folks in this creative flow, it acts in service of
0: mm-hmm.
1: going again, accessing more of, of what we have um, to offer. And so I think there's a really big connection between helping our body experience a sense of even a little bit of safety when we want to move into creativity.
0: Yes. Wow, that's so good. And, you know, you've got me thinking even about some of my own experience, some of my own upbringing and things that I've even worked through in more recent years. I realized how self-protective I've been most of my life and how, if I don't feel that sense of safety, I really lock up and I go inward and that, that you know, that introvert <laughs> takes over. But it's really interesting to me that, you know, like you're saying, this sense of awareness is a good thing, but when it is kind of hypersensitive due to trauma or painful experiences, it can actually inhibit our creativity and, and get us more inward focused rather than curious and expansive. And you know, you're talking about being grounded, and the thought just comes to me that we really have to be grounded in order to experience some of this transcendence that I'm talking about, or some of this creative ecstasy, or some of this you know, wonder larger than life experience. Because I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or elaborate on this, but What happens is if we try to experience those things without being grounded, we can substitute escapism for a more true experience of spiritual reality or creative reality.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really well-said description of what I think many of us not realizing often that we're even doing it, right? Because I think... You know, our bodies, we want relief from pain. Mm-hmm. And I say that not from a place of judgment. I say it from a place of of reality and honesty. Like, I think as humans, um, we struggle with pain. And and there's no shame in that. Like, I think that's, you know, God, I think, created us to only be able to sort of take so much. And there's some wisdom to that. But I just, I say that in the sense that I think people are often looking for relief, Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what happens is in our desire to experience relief, we trade one type of disconnection for another. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when transcendence makes us less of ourselves, Mm. perhaps it's not what we think it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And I think that for me, that's a grounding belief and value here is that we are designed for fullness. And that doesn't mean that there aren't seasons, right? There are seasons when we have less to give or that we feel smaller. That's all part of the ebb and flow. But I would say that is in the context of the bigger reality, which is that we are made to be the our full selves. Yes. And so I love how you say that because there is a sense in which it's, it's like that desire for transcendence is beautiful no matter what. And we can honor it. And I just would say, how can that desire act in service of our wholeness? So good. And not in service of our disconnection.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come on. That's it. <laughs> Dropping the mic right there. <laughs> Are you looking for a place to connect with other like-minded artists who are chasing after the deeper questions of art and the spiritual life? I want to invite you to be a part of the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. This community is designed to be a safe place to be in process, a place to have more questions than answers, and a beautiful environment to overcome isolation and build relationships with other artists and creative thinkers from around the world each month we share works in progress for feedback and encouragement and we participate in online book clubs and discussion sessions visit patreon.com makers and mystics to sign up well this reminds me of another part of your book where you talked about one of your clients who had a low tolerance for experiencing goodness and became a bit disoriented or even distrusting of goodness as a result of the trauma in their lives. And you talked about how disorienting pain or sin or brokenness can be. And to quote you, you said, if we orient ourselves to the good, the true, and the beautiful to love itself, we can begin to carry that around with us everywhere we go. And that just reminds me of that is that when we're oriented in truth and when we're grounded in love, truth, beauty, and goodness, we can begin that healing process. Because I think some people do, when we experience goodness, maybe we're suspicious. When's the other shoe going to drop?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that I find, and this is something that I think most, that kind of throws a lot of people off because they don't expect this And that is that even goodness can feel a little, like it can be kind of activating or triggering to our nervous system. Mm-hmm. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. For a lot of folks who have experienced a lack of, of safety, they've literally like their nervous system. Um, and when I say safety, I'm going to expand that to say goodness, Right. Because I think at the core of goodness is safety. It's communicating something important to our bodies. Like I would say it feels like an exhale to our bodies, like in a visceral level. Right. When you have, when your body and your spirit and yourself has been shaped around threat. And then folks introduce some goodness to you it is so normal for people to be suspicious for your, for your nervous system to say, this isn't going to last. This is too good to be true. What bad things going to (laughs) happen after I experience this. And I think for so many of us, the temptation is just to honestly kind of shame ourselves for that. Like, Oh, there I am being so bad again, because I can't just appreciate this. And I would like to just offer a reframe. And the reframe is this, this is your body making sense. Mm -hmm. Because our bodies are built to understand patterns. I mean, our bodies are phenomenal at recognizing patterns. And if the pattern of your life has been pain, trauma, disconnection, then goodness is going to, at the beginning, feel like sometimes too much. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, when I say that, this is not to discourage us from moving towards goodness. But in the language I use, you know, social media, the work I do in my writing, I often say things like at the pace you are able. You know, or I'll say things like if it feels like a resource. And the reason I do this is because some our bodies often need to sort of ease into learning a new pattern. Mm-hmm. And that is okay. This is actually um, a really important part of healing, right? Rather than being like, why are you not at the finish line? It's like saying, you know, I I am, fra-, like we are fragile. <laughs> we can sometimes only handle so much and that's okay. And the bigger, more important concept underneath that is allowing ourselves to internalize that at the pace we can. And that births more goodness. And it creates an upward spiral where we can spend more and more time in those places where, and I mean that psychologically, spiritually, all the things, like we can spend more time connecting um, with goodness. Mm -hmm. So good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanna highlight something you just mentioned because you were talking about pace. And that's something that I've heard you talk about several times before on your social media accounts. I recently led an artist retreat outside of Nashville. And one of our meditations for the weekend was a quote from the poet Mary Oliver. And the quote is, things take the time they take, don't worry. How many roads did St. Augustine follow before he became St. Augustine? And this quote reminds me of what you're talking about with pace. And I'd love for you to speak into that a bit more, why it's important for us, especially as artists, but really as anyone on a healing journey, why pace is important when it comes to unpacking and walking through our own traumatic experiences.
1: Well, first, I love that quote, and I love Mary Oliver so much. She has um, just been a profound resource to me in my own journey. And um, yeah, I think this concept of pace, we could talk about this so long, so I'll try to make it more concise. But here's what I would just say is that on one level, um, there's the neurobiological reality. And the neurobiological reality is this, that each of us sort of have this range of arousal in our bodies that we can really experience. And when I say that, what I mean is, is like a feeling we could have, an emotion, a like a memory, a sensation. All these things we can only experience so much intensity before our body, um, again going back to that neuroception, will say, "Oh, we've gone into a threat mode." And what happens is that we'll then go into either some form of like fight or flight or fawning, which is like sort of a form of like people pleasing or potentially sort of like a dissociation or a depression. Mm. So what's important to understand is that this idea is not contained to only like when you're in counseling, (laughs) like Our window of tolerance, our personal window of tolerance, comes with us everywhere we go. Every every building we enter, every um, creative task we engage, um, all these things like this is something that's a part of us. And so, even when we're considering something like art, and particularly if that art touches on painful parts of our stories, it's really important to honor the information our body is giving us. Because if we don't, often what is going to happen is we go from a place where maybe we're a little uncomfortable, like this is a little uncomfortable, but like I can still do it. But if we miss those cues for too long, it can go to a place of harm, right? And I think sometimes what we see for artists sometimes is, you know, it's like, there's maybe a lot of anxiety and it's like, push, push, push. And then, and then the depression comes, right? And then it's like, I feel so disconnected. I feel so empty. I feel like I don't have anything else to give. Um, Those are very common traits of, because our body first goes up into that sort of fight or flight. And when that doesn't um, resolve the threat, our body will shift down, Yes. into more of that depressive
0: experience. I'm shaking my head, yes, a million times over just because that's even my own personal experience. And it reminds me a lot of what Kay Redfield Jamison has talked about when she deals with exuberance and the super high highs that the artist experiences. And then some of those depressive states, it's like we, we undulate between the highs and the lows. And part of my work has been how to still live in fullness, but also bring some regulation to
1: the highs and lows of our lives. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that is, I mean, I think that's such an important question, right? And, and I think, you know, my work, this neurobiological lens would say that regulation, God willing, and the work of strong like water is not to dampen the high. Mm-hmm. and not to necessarily bypass the low but it's to do it in such a way that we bring we bring our core self with us mm-hmm. right like it's like that again even that conversation around transcendence it's it's in service of the wholeness like like w- like we can when we experience those highs, that we can honor it and even recognize the role and the value that that plays in our creative artistic process, but then also bring a lens of things like self-compassion and self-care. Like, for example, what would I need? I am a very highly sensitive person. And so I know what that's like to get that. Like, it's such a high that your body almost doesn't know how do I feel this thing that just feels so big? And it's not even necessarily a bad thing. It's maybe a really good thing. And even there to begin to ask the question, well, what would I need to honor this experience um, and even to move it through even the good, like like for me, like I love walking and I love getting outside when, when I walk because it is so grounding for me and it allows me to process a lot of big emotions in my body in a way that brings me back to regulation. Mm-hmm. And I think about that um, with this conversation, like what are the practices that keep you in the flow? Not to cut it off, but to integrate it.
0: Yes. Who you are. Yes. That's so good. Integration. That's that's the key, huh? Very much. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, Andi, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast today. This has been a truly exceptional conversation.
1: Mm. Well, I have loved our talk and thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics
0: podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics. And see the show notes of this episode for links to today's guests. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.